Matthew chapter 23. We're going to continue our series through the book of Matthew. That's what we're doing. My daughter Kayla asked me yesterday if I had something special planned for our 10-year anniversary. And I said, no. <laughs> I don't. And it's not because I didn't pray about it. I just thought, ah, there's so many thoughts. I don't know what to say. So we're just going to stick to Matthew for now. Um, this is a passage where Jesus is addressing the hypocrisy and the self-righteousness of the religious leaders. This is a few days before he's going to die. He knows they're going to kill him. They're going to hand him over to the Romans. So he's addressing the self-righteousness of the religious, religious leaders uh, for the last time. He's talking to a crowd about them, and then he's going to talk to them. And, and, and so we're going to kind of just tackle that topic. I want to start off by asking the question, how many of you guys have trouble with people who are hypocritical or self-righteous? Anybody have trouble with them? Let me define it a little bit. Let me define it a bit. Hypocrites being, you know, you, somebody who says one thing and does another, or perhaps they um, say one thing to you and then say something else behind your back. Or maybe they do the right thing, but they do it with the wrong motives. They do it to show. They do it to get applause. Maybe they're self-righteous in the sense that they're hard on everybody else, but they're really soft on themselves. So you have a hard time with people like that? Yeah? Most of you do. Most of you do. Okay, yeah, yeah. Here's another question. How many of you feel like you can tell when somebody's being real judgmental and self-righteous? Like you have a real good radar for that kind of thing. I saw this meme. I can determine whether someone is judgmental just by looking at them. How many of you feel like, that's my gift? How many of you feel like, that's me? I, I have that gift. A trick question. You see that? A trick question. <laughs> but seriously, how many of us actually think that we can do this? And we don't see the irony in it. We don't see the hypocrisy in it. So my last question, my last question, how many of you can at least admit, yeah, I can be self-righteous and hypocritical at times? Yeah? Yeah? I, I can. It's <laughs> both hands. I certainly can. We started off uh, our True Life Church 10 years ago. We set out to be an authentic and inclusive church. Authentic meaning I'm not going to pretend to be somebody I'm not. I'm going to be honest about my struggles. Inclusive meaning I'm going to include and welcome and love somebody who's different from me or struggles in ways that I don't struggle I'm going to love them, somebody who's different from me, who votes differently than me. We set out, to, and I think in many ways we've achieved that. I hear, uh, you know, there's a lot of problems with our church. I know really well about our problems. But the one thing that I've heard talked about so much in the last 10 years is, oh, wow, you guys really are authentic. But there's still a ways to go for all of us, and we can't get prideful about that. We can't rest on that and go, oh, look at us. No, there's still a way to grow in living out those values. And one way to do that is to be on guard against the self-righteousness and hypocrisy that we're all still prone to, including me. I talked last week at the end of Bill Meyer's message. I talked about how I can be judgmental of people who I think are judgmental. I remember God brought to mind this week as I was preparing. Back in 2016 or 17, is one of my moments here. Um, I was preaching through the book of Ephesians, and it was the day we had a baby dedication. And uh, the passage was about how God uh, makes us alive through his spirit when we trust in Jesus and changes us from the inside out. 
And, and, and I was trying to make the point that therefore, somebody who's a Christian shouldn't expect somebody who's not a Christian to act like a Christian. We shouldn't have that expectation. We shouldn't look dis- with disdain at people who aren't Christians for not acting like Christians. And then I said a statement that some of you are going to get offended right now by me saying it. But just hear me out. I said, Christians are retarded sometimes. That's what I said. I apologized for my wording at the time. I apologized for my reckless. It was not a good thing to say. I apologized a couple of times. But what I never apologized for was my heart behind it. Because the more I thought about it, I was like, you know what I was really doing? I was, nothing wrong with challenging all of us to be on guard against our self-righteousness, but what I was really feeling in that moment, and the angst that was behind it was, if only church people could get it like I get it. That's what I was feeling. I was trying to challenge other people's self-righteousness with a self-righteous heart of my own. And I've had many moments like that. Some of you guys who know me, you have seen it in me. You don't have to say amen right now. (laughs) But you can share stories in the cafeteria about it. If you want. So today, we're celebrating uh, 10 years that you guys have had a hypocrite as a pastor. (laughs) Now, but the title of today is Seven Prayers for Hypocrites Like Us. Seven prayers. We're going to walk through Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus addresses this in the religious leaders. I'm going to pull out seven prayers and, 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 um, and we're going to end with some time of, of reflection and worship. And that's the plan. So let me pray. Jesus, Jesus, we want to be more like you. But we can't follow your example without your spirit empowering us, humbling us, helping us, freeing us, revealing to us areas where we're not like you, giving us the grace to admit it, confess it. Jesus, I pray for this church. I pray for the next 10 years that we would become more like you as a community. In your name, amen. Okay, so we're not going to read every verse in Matthew 23. There's a lot here, but I'm going to pull out some things. We're going to start in verse 1. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat... So you must be careful not to do, every, to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Moses' seat, this was a seat of authority. Uh, in, 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 in this time, um, uh, any, any re- religion in any society tend to have the seat of authority. So for Judaism, it was seat of Moses. Moses' seat, that's what they called it. And so they would sit, these Pharisees would sit in Moses' seat, and they would expound on the law of Moses, and they would talk about the extra rules that they think are required to obey the law of Moses, but they did it from a place of like they're the arbiters of what's right and wrong. Telling other people to submit, but they themselves were not putting themselves under it. They were seeing themselves as a judge on top of the whole thing. And Jesus continues, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They were making it hard for people to come to God And they felt good about it. Kind of kept them at the top of the 
pyramid, so to speak. And Jesus is telling the crowds about them. So he's looking at the crowds. He's talking to them about these religious leaders who are in earshot, by the way. And I think an implication that we can get from this is that Jesus knew that they were prone, even though many in the crowd believed him to be the Messiah, the religious leaders over here didn't, rejected him, but the crowds at this point were like, yeah, yeah, Messiah, Messiah. And Jesus is still saying, you guys are in danger of drifting into self-righteousness and hypocrisy. He's warning them, don't be like them. And I think one implication we can get from this is that it, we're always in danger of drifting into the self-righteous hypocrisy ditch. Like we're never beyond that. We're never beyond that temptation. We don't move past that, no matter how much we mature spiritually. There's always a, a ditch on that side of the road as we're traveling down the spiritual growth path. There's always a tendency to, to veer into it. The rest of the New Testament warns against it. There's an incident where the Apostle Peter, uh, the Apostle Paul confronts Peter about his hypocrisy. Gets in his face later on. Gets in Peter's face and calls him a hypocrite because he's not acting according to the gospel was being one way, and then all of a sudden he switched because a new group was around. So I think we're always in danger of that. So prayer number one is may we be aware of the constant temptation to be self-righteous. If you haven't heard about a scandal with a church leader or pastor recently, give it a few days. You probably will, unfortunately. People who are exposed for hiding something in their life, we're not dealing with something. Jess and I recently watched the, the, the movie about Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. And uh, it's Hollywood eyes, of course. And, um, but just what I know and have read about Jim Baker in the 80s, like he's, he started off sincere. He believed in God loves people. He wants to share God's love for people. But built an empire, had to protect that empire, got caught up in that empire, Got caught up in some shady financial dealings, drifted away, had an affair, came out later with a book that said I, I was wrong was the title. And then people criticized that, saying he just wanted to make money, but whatever. Like the point is people who start off sincere can often drift and fall into this ditch and not see it because self-righteousness is so deceptive. We can see it in other people and it's so hard to see it in ourselves. I am not immune to it. Like little cancer cells in our souls, if we allow them to clump together, they can grow into a tumor. And we always have to be on guard against it. Even the idea of being an authentic and humble, uh, you know, that, that value that we talk about, we can get proud of having that value. Right? If somebody's ever said to me, oh, Chris, you're different than other pastors, you're humble. I can get proud of that. Right? It's so sneaky and insidious. I've had people say to me, like, hey, Chris, I know you don't like to hear praise about yourself, but, and then they give me a compliment. And I just want to clarify, I, it's not that I don't like hearing praise. I like hearing praise. That's why I'm like, whoa. It's like um, a McDonald's meal. Tastes good going down. And then it makes you feel icky inside. It's addicting. We got to be on guard against it. <laughs> All right, let's keep going. That's prayer number one. Verse five, everything they do is done for people to see. 
They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Phylacteries, these were these like prayer boxes. They wore them on their shoulder and, and sometimes their forehead had scriptures in it. And it was you know, supposed to be a way of staying submitted to God's word, meditating on God's word. But these guys used it, made it real big and pronounced so that people could see and go, wow, look at them. Look at them. You know, like, like, like we're supposed to read our Bibles. But when, you know, you, you, can, you can take a big Bible and make it look worn and make sure everybody sees it and put it up everywhere, right? We play the game. And Jesus was saying, that's what these guys were doing. They're doing it for show. There's nothing wrong with titles being called rabbi, but he's saying they loved it. They coveted this, this attention being important. They loved to be greeted as somebody who's important. It was a show for them. They wanted to be seen as spiritually mature, spiritually uh, not needy in a spiritual way, so that they could be impressive to others. In other words, uh, they were putting off an air of not being spiritually needy, but really they were very needy for the praise of people. Folks who can't admit that, man, I'm needy spiritually, it's often because they have to be put together in the eyes of other people because they're needy for people to think well of them. I'm reading an autobiography by Frederick, Frederick Douglass. He was a slave who escaped slavery in 1830s and, and then became a freedom fighter. He was influenced Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. Um, but in one of the, he was talking about one of his masters, and he said something that I just caught my attention this week. He said uh, he, about this master, he was more concerned with a Christian appearance than Christian character. I just thought, hmm, wasn't that like the Pharisees? When Christian, but godly. They were more concerned about a godly appearance than godly character. One of the reasons they rejected Jesus, because they couldn't hear the criticism. Because they were more concerned with their appearance and keeping it up. And Jesus was a threat to their appearance. So prayer number two. May we be more concerned with our Christian character than our Christian appearance. May we be more concerned about actually growing than other people thinking that we're growing. I was talking to somebody recently who had shared that um, an issue that they once dealt with, they were dealing with it again, but they were not sharing it with their kind of accountability group. They were hiding it from them, and then they finally came clean. They told me about it. And I said, well, how come you didn't share it with, with, with that group sooner? And they said, well, it got to a point where I was seen as somebody who had overcome this issue, and I liked being seen that way. And it became hard to admit that I'm struggling again. I thought that was very honest to be able to admit that. Because we all have been there. We all can be there. Sometimes for folks who are in church or know their Bibles or been walking with Jesus for a while, we can get to a point where we think people have to see us a certain way. And then it's, oh no, I can't admit that I'm struggling with this thing all of a sudden. So may we care more about our Christian character than our appearance. Down in verse 11, Jesus said this, The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves 
will be exalted. Again, telling the crowds, don't be like these guys, because these guys are exalting themselves. They're exalting their appearance. They're exalting uh, their performance. They're exalting their uh, knowledge of the scriptures. Don't be like them. Humble yourself. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The person who I just referenced telling that group how humbling it must have been to not just admit I'm struggling with this issue again, but also to admit, and I've been hiding it lately. Double humbling. But they did it. They did it. And may we all have the courage. That's prayer number three. Humble ourselves by admitting when we're not humble. Right? At least, can we at least have the courage to say, you know what? I was acting arrogantly. I was acting self-righteously. I was more angry at this person and their issue, and I was being too soft on myself. May we humble ourselves by admitting when we're not humble, and may we humble ourselves by admitting when we're pretending to be humble. I have a distinct memory it's kind of embarrassing, but um, at high school year of football, there was a banquet, and it was, you know, celebrating the end of the year, and so um, my coach in a, was, was talking about different players, and he was saying something about me, and then he was like, and now Chris, stand up, and I remember I was kind of slow to stand, and he said something like, uh, you know, look at him, he's, he's so humble, he doesn't even like the attention, and when I finally was standing up, I, it was as if God was like, you have him fooled. <laughs> it was a gentle little like, oh, you got him fooled. Because I liked, I wanted to be recognized for my, you know, athletic whatever. At the time, I wanted the recognition for it. I just knew not to get up and be like, yeah, bring it on. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I was too smart for that. And you get double applause if you get up slowly and you look humble. Right? And we all know how to play the humble game. And so may we have the honesty before the Holy Spirit to go, I'm not as humble as you thought I was. That story I told and I made it look like, actually, I was really bragging. All right, now Jesus is going to turn to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. He's been talking to the crowds about them. And now he's going to be like, to them. The last time, he's a few days away from dying. And he knows they're going to hand him over. In verse 13, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe means like, yikes. <laughs> like, oy vey, like, like, watch out. Like, it's, it's a, like a warning. Like, look out, you're in danger here. You teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And there's seven of these woes that Jesus goes into. We're not going to look at all of them. In this case right here, he, he talks about how they were uh, with their performance, their spiritual performance mindset. They are teaching others. They're making converts of others and leading them into this performance-driven uh, religion that is going to keep them out of the kingdom of God. Because they're not humbling and saying, I need a savior. They're teaching people, no, you do what we do and you jump through these hoops and then you're good. And Jesus is like, woe to you, because you're actually keeping other people out of the kingdom of God. In verse 15, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. In verse 16, woe to you, blind guides. 
In this case, he goes on to talk about how they were um, making these oaths, these oaths uh, on the temple. They were making these, uh, you know, I I swear on the temple, and then they would change their oath and go, actually, I swear on the gold in the temple because they wanted to change their minds on something. It was like their version of when you make a promise and you kind of cross your fingers behind your back, and you go, hey, Charles, actually, when I made that promise, my fingers were crossed, so sorry. It's kind of like they're playing this game. It was politics. It was religious politics. And there wasn't a reverence before God. There wasn't a fear of God and his holiness. Look at verse 23. I'm going to expound on this one. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. You swallow, strain out a gnat so that their drink doesn't become unclean. But that picture of, and you're swallowing a whole camel. You're taking your mint and your dill and your cumin. You're breaking it away and saying, okay, I'm going to tithe on this. And you look really good. You look like a real meticulous spiritual giant by doing that. Meanwhile, you're neglecting the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed around you. You don't have God's heart for others. You're just focused on your performance, your appearance before others, keeping the status in others' eyes. So they were justifying their disobedience. So prayer number four, may we not justify disobedience through religious games. This happens in all kinds of ways, hypothetical situations. We might be super dependable in our church. Because we're getting pats on the back in our church community. Meanwhile, we're neglecting neighbors and coworkers who are hurting. We get, to get, we get the pats in the church community. Or maybe you're neglecting your spouse, but meanwhile, you got all this head knowledge and you're, you know, focused on, uh, you know, end times theology, for example, and you're going to your groups and you look real smart, but you're neglecting your spouse because you're getting the attention over here while you're neglecting your marriage that's hurting. We do it in all kinds of ways. I'll volunteer. I'm going to be stingy with my money because people can see me volunteer. They don't know what I'm doing with my money. We play these games or I'm going to, I'm going to go downtown. I'm going to volunteer and I'm going to do justice works. But meanwhile, my sexual life is off limits to God. I'm going to do what I want, but I justify it. We play these games. We weigh. Well, I'm doing this for God really good, so I don't really have to worry about over here. And meanwhile, God's saying, I want you all in, all of you. Because I love you that much and I want to change you completely. And we hold these little pieces like the Pharisees were doing, these these games. How about this one? I will justify my uh, anger and my unforgiveness or my bitterness by telling myself that somebody else's wrong to me is a bigger offense to God than my bitterness before him. Right? Anybody ever do that? No? I've done it. (laughs) I'm the worst one here, I guess. Verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. They're so focused on being ceremonial clean. But in the inside, there's greed, there's self-indulgence, and they're not dealing with it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 
You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. At this time, they would whitewash the tombs so that they would sparkle so that you could stay away from them. Because everybody knew that if you get too close to a tomb, then you're unclean. Too close to a body, you're unclean. You can't take part in the temple uh, activities. And so they would wash them so that they could sparkle and pop, and then you could stay away from them. And Jesus knew that. So he's like, hey, they look really good, but you guys are staying away from those things because of how unclean they are. And that's you. You look really good on the outside. But on the inside, you're rotting. You're rotting. You're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You're full of sin that you're not dealing with. You're not admitting to. And these guys are not going to hear it. They're not going to hear it from this Jesus of Nazareth. They're not going to hear it from this guy who claims to be Messiah because he did not come in the shape and the form that they expected the Messiah to come in. They didn't approve of his ordination. They're like, who's giving him this authority? And they're going to hand him over to the Romans. They won't hear it. It's another aspect of self-righteousness. They cannot be challenged. They cannot be criticized because their appearance matters too much. And to be told they're doing something wrong is a threat to their very identity. And so that's prayer number five, that we would not be so self-righteous that we can't hear criticism. We can't be told, hey, you're a little off here. You got this wrong here. And again, I've been there. I, I, I've, I, I've um, neglected to heed critique because maybe I can justify it by saying, well, it didn't, they're not being, you know, they, their tone is off or they didn't come in a loving way or they're, you know, have 10 things and nine of them are just so crazy that I can just throw the whole 10 out. But it's like, well, there's actually one thing that you really do need to look at, Chris, you know? And so there's been some situations where I've had to go back to some people in here and be like, you know what, you were right, actually. I did have an anger problem when we had that conversation. Or actually, you were right, you had a good point, and I was too defensive, and I missed it. Um, and sometimes it was months later. One particular time, it was a year later. But may we be a church that's quick to go... All right, I'm going to pray about that. Even though the tone here is just completely off, and I think you're wrong here, and you got 10 things wrong in my mind, I'm just going to be like, you know what? I'm going to pray about some of this because God might have something here for me to grow in. That makes sense? Applies to marriage big time. Almost done. This is the last part. Last, last. This is how the chapter ends. Jesus has just given out all these woes. This is after seven woes. Woe on you, woe on you. And then he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, those God sent to you, that was the case throughout the Old Testament, and now Jesus knows as the ultimate prophet, they are about to kill him. They're about to do the same thing their ancestors did. He says, your house is left to you desolate, following in the way of the religious leaders and the Pharisees. You're not going to see me again until I come, he's referring to his second coming. 
But notice his heart. Oh, like it's like it's his heart of compassion, his broken heart for them. All the harsh words he just said was out of a soft heart of compassion. A soft heart of, oh, I long to gather you. I love you. I wanted to call you to myself. And that's prayer number six. May we grasp how much God loves us even in our hypocrisy. Even in our worst moments of self-righteousness, he loves us. And what would it take for these guys over here to experience his love? Because right now, Jesus is saying, I long to gather you. I want you to experience my love. And they're saying, no thanks. And so they're going to miss out on it. Because they're saying, no thanks, don't need it. What would it take? First of all, they'd have to know, oh, he loves them even in their hypocrisy. Many of them are going to continue to reject him, reject him, reject him. But there's one Pharisee in particular. We don't know if he was there that day. I don't know. But there's, come, there's a point where there's one Pharisee who persecutes the church. Even after Jesus raises from the dead, he wants to stomp it out. He wants to get rid of all these Christians who are following this guy, Jesus. And then he has an encounter with the risen Jesus. And things change. And he's a guy who later says, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. That would be the Apostle Paul, who was once like one of these Pharisees over here with their arms crossed. Who's this guy? Jesus. And then he later on, he could say, while I was still a sinner, stuck in my hypocrisy, stuck in my self-righteousness, Christ died for me. That's good news. That's good news so that we don't walk out of here beating ourselves up for being self-righteous jerks. All we can do is turn our eyes back to Jesus and go, thank you for loving me and forgiving me. Thank you for loving me even in my worst moment. Even when I'm judging other people, you still love me. That's great news to the hypocrites at least. So that means somebody who's completely not a Christian, rejecting Jesus, it's never too late to go, you know what? Forgive me. I can't, you died for me. I don't know how to stop being the way I am, but I'm coming to you asking for your forgiveness. And for Christians who are with Jesus, but who uh, take our eyes off the cross. Where's the cross? There used to be a cross. Take our eyes off the cross and look at other people and what other people are doing. It's never too late to just to go, you know what? I'm going to repent. This makes repentance really good, a, a, a joyful experience. We get to always say, oh, I'm stuck focusing on what everybody else is doing. I'm repenting by fixing my eyes back on the cross again. And remembering how much you love me. I think the main way we love God, by the way, is just to focus our attention on how much he loves us. And just revel in it and enjoy it. But I will add, knowing God loves us, knowing Jesus loves us is not enough to move us. Is not enough to free us. And I know some of you guys are like, wait, what? Yeah, it's not enough. My experience as a teenager, Jesus loved me. I knew that as a teenager. I was so confident he loved me that I thought I can do anything and he doesn't even care. <laughs> and I did whatever I wanted and didn't think he cared. Because he was small. He was a small deal to me. Jesus' love for me was like my grandma's love for me as a teenager. Like when I was a little kid, my grandma was a big deal. 
Love to go to her house and stuff. When I was a teenager, I was like, yeah, I know grandma loves me, but what I really need is my, you know, fit in with my friends and have fun at the parties and this girl to like me and make sure that they don't break up with me and win a wrestling match or a football game. Like, that's what really mattered. My grandma's love for me was a small deal. Jesus' love for me was a small deal. And so it didn't move me. It was small. I could put it in my pocket. I could take it out when I needed it. He wasn't big. So it's not just knowing Jesus loves us. It's knowing that he is holy, a holy God who loves us. And that's prayer number seven. May we be in awe of God's holiness. May we not lose it. May God always remind us, refresh us that he is big. When I was ordained, one of the questions I had to answer was, in what ways does understanding God's holiness help us understand every other attribute of God? So for example, God is love. But his love is a holy love. It's different otherworldly. It's so far beyond our understanding of love. It's not small that you can put it in the pocket. It's holy. It's big. It's something that should go, wow. Every attribute of God is holy. The Pharisees thought they had God figured out. So he became small. They had the formula down. They had God figured out and they ran this religion. Because they knew, they knew the formula, they knew the steps. Last night, I just, I, I was preparing, and my, my heart was a teenager's in here. Raise your hand if you're a teenager. You guys can raise your hand. There's nothing to be ashamed of being teenagers. Anybody else? I, I felt this extra burden for you guys. And young, you know, preteens, include, include my daughter in there. I, I, I just had this burden for you guys. Don't be like me as a teenager. You're growing up maybe with a Christian family. You're growing up in the church. And your tendency is to think, yeah, 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 I've heard that in my whole life. I get it. I got it. I know Jesus loves me. Sure, sure, sure. Anyway, that good news becomes old news. And so my concern for you guys is to make sure... And I, you can't even make sure. My prayer is just as a church, let's pray for our teenagers that we would always be in awe of God's holiness. That he's big, that he becomes bigger and bigger and bigger as they grow and not smaller and smaller in their minds. They not figured it out. There's um, like, without seeing him as holy, if he's small, then we become big. And when we become big, then uh, uh, how we appear to other people becomes too big. Our reputation becomes too important. Needing to be right becomes too important. Needing to be understood becomes too important. Needing to know that people like us becomes too important. But when he's holy and we're put in our proper space, it's like, ah, whatever. Whatever they're saying, I, I got to grow. They got to grow. I got to grow. God loves me unconditionally. He's, he's going to grow me. We're going to end with a song right now. It's a song that first the band's going to sing over us. We're not going to sing yet. I want us to be slow to sing right now. Just slow to, slow to open our mouths. The band's going to sing over us. And then, and then we'll stand and sing together one, one, one more time. But um, the, one of the lyrics to this song goes like this. It's kind of an oldie. Um, I thought that I had figured you out. I knew all the stories and I learned to talk about how you were mighty to save but those were only empty words on a page. 
Then I caught a glimpse of who you might be. The slightest hint of you brought me down to my knees. The Pharisees thought they had God figured out. May we not think we have him figured out. May we not think that we got him. He's in the palm of our hand. He's the one who's got the whole world in his hands. And there's so much more of him to know. And as we grow to know him more, we should be more in awe of him. Wow, big God. And he loves me. So let the band sing over us and let's let God's spirit speak to us.